Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you, and truly, you are the only reason that we can stand. There is no other. There is no other that has paid the price. There is no other that has taken our sin as far as the east is from the west. There is no one other that is worthy of our worship. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning, and we ask for your help to worship, not just in song and in prayer, but through hearing your word, through listening to it, Lord, to obeying it, to uh, in a few moments to give to you and to worship you in these ways. Father, we don't just pray for ourselves, but other churches. We know that you are working in this community and in this area of our world. We lift up uh, Bethel Baptist to you this morning. We pray that you would be with them, that you would encourage them, Lord, that you would help them uh, to preach the gospel in this community. Father, we lift up other churches in our network. We pray for Grace Reformed Baptist Church up in Camp Hill, Pennsylvania, that you would be with the elders there this morning as they lead worship and as they seek to lift up the name of Christ, that, Lord, you would be honored and glorified. Father, we pray for the persecuted church. We seek to do that regularly because we know that there are many places, Lord, where people are not free to worship you. And, Lord, they're being persecuted. They're being put in prison they are being killed, and that's happening in our day, and we often forget that. We lift up the persecuted church specifically in Algeria this morning, Lord, that you would give uh, Algerian Christians strength to stand, to endure, to uh, uh, preach Christ even uh, in prison. Lord, that you would give them strength, we pray. Father, we pray for the unreached people, Lord, around the world. It's amazing that we celebrate, Lord, 2,000 years since you ascended to your Father's throne and you sat down that completed work. And yet, Lord, there's still billions, billions that have not yet heard your name. And we lift them up to you, God. We pray for the Bolano people of Indonesia, God, that you would send missionaries to them, Lord, that the that the gospel would be preached to them, that you would spare and redeem many from that people group. God, we lift up the crisis in many places around our world. We lift up Sudan, uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, the Turkey and Syria uh, earthquake response. It's still happening. There's so many people, Lord, that are undone and needy. God, that you would help the refugees, that uh, people that don't have a home, even in our own country, those who have lost much through the tornadoes and flooding in recent days, that you would help them. Oh God, I pray for the grieving. God, that you would be with the Lawrence family and the Poe family as they grieve the loss of Paulette this week. Uh, we thank you for taking her home, and we uh, trust that you uh, will comfort uh, those left behind, but we thank you for taking her to her heavenly reward. And Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing in those families, Lord. We pray continually for the Brown family, Lord, as they continue to grieve the loss of Cade here in this community. Uh, Father, we pray for those traveling. We think of John and Ellie Tucker and others that are traveling this weekend. Uh, Father, for our expectant mothers, uh, Ellie and Sarah, that you'd be with them, to be with these precious babies in the womb, as we saw in Psalm 139 in Sunday school this morning, that you intricately weave us together in the darkness of the womb and Lord, what a, a treasure that is, and what a thing to celebrate uh, life uh, in the womb. And so would you give these moms uh, great 
pregnancies and healthy deliveries. Father, would you give healing to Lloyd Tyler uh, after his surgery Monday, that you would continue to heal him and give him strength. Uh, Father, strengthen Jackie as she cares for Lloyd's parents as well in the midst of all this. And thank you for Scott as well, Lord, that you would just be with that family. Lord, for the Richardsons, we pray for Danny's continued recovery after cancer surgery. Lord, we pray that it would not spread. Uh, Lord, thank you for uh, the doctors and all that they're doing to um, uh, just just see to it that uh, this this cancer doesn't doesn't spread. So we just pray for your grace. You are the great physician, and we know that your hands are on Danny, and we ask that you would continue to do that. Father, we pray for uh, David Lemire's mother who fell yesterday and had to have emergency surgery, that you would be um, with her, uh, whether they had to do just pins or hip replacement. We pray for her quick recovery, that you would um, uh, just be with her, Lord. Uh, we thank you for uh, Becca, Lord, the Jackson's daughter. Thank you for what you're doing in her and continuing to give wisdom uh, in all of her uh, health needs. And so, Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing there, that we can entrust these things to you. Finally, Lord, we do pray for uh, our members in transition, and uh, we pray that you would be with them. We thank you for this church plant, Lord, down in Wilkes County uh, at Christ alone, that you would strengthen Pastor Tim this morning to preach. Uh, we thank you for him. We pray that you would uh, strengthen uh, both he and myself as we uh, prepare to go to youth camp, Lord, uh, this next week, that you would be with these uh, 16 young people that are going with us, Lord, that you would work in their hearts. We pray that you would produce fruit um, to your glory. Finally now, Lord, as we look at your word, would you be so kind as to uh, speak it to us and help us to understand it and help us to apply it. And Lord, hide me behind your cross. Give me strength, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 14? Genesis chapter 14. I trust that you all are doing well. Um, children, I want to apologize. I forgot to get my, the children's bulletins that I was going to read, so I will catch up again next week on those. I'll do a couple of them. We're making our way through the book of Genesis. Would you stand with me as we read uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17, through the end of the chapter, verse 24. This is God's word. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the most God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten 
and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eskol, and Mamre take their share. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. A few years back, my family and I were eating at Cracker Barrel. That's always a pleasant thing if you have been able to be blessed with the opportunity to do so. But for the day family, that's very rare. Uh, it doesn't happen very often, and for obvious reasons, uh, money being a factor, but also time and getting everybody's schedules lined up. But a couple years back, we, we did this, and we sat down, and we ate our lunch, and as we were eating, I noticed out of the corner of my eye an older gentleman watching us and being very aware of my own children, wanting to uh, see that they behaved, um, he was just observing us the whole meal. And it was a pleasant meal. And that was surprising to us that uh, our kids weren't acting out or anything like that. They are, were well behaved. And this man came up to us and he said, you know, I raised five sons of my own and uh, he told us the story of his early fatherhood, and he was a new widower, and he had lost his wife, and uh, he just enjoyed eating his meal and watching us, and it brought great encouragement to him. So he, I, I thanked him, but as he was walking out, he grabbed the ticket off the table and took it out and paid for it. And I got all of our things together and went out to uh, want to thank him uh, in the lobby, and he had disappeared. And I didn't uh, get to say goodbye or say thank you uh, other than uh, at the table. This occurrence of a, and kindness of just a mere stranger uh, left an, a profound impact upon me, reminding me that the Lord cares for us always. In the context of this text, we see a very mysterious figure come onto the scene of the narrative of Genesis, and almost as quickly as he comes onto the narrative, he disappears. If you notice the context here, we see Abram talking with the king of Sodom. Yes, this is the same Sodom that we read about in previous chapters, that this was the place where Lot went to dwell. It's also the place that God said was very wicked. It's also the place we'll learn about in just a few passages that God ultimately will destroy. And Lot will get out by the skin of his teeth, literally. And so as we see this take place, this mysterious king comes on the scene. The, writers of, the writer of Hebrews uses this very figure of Melchizedek to show that Christ is better than and superior to the Aaronic priesthood let alone the priesthood that he ultimately is showing to be one that Christ ultimately would fulfill. Right here in the text, this name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. It's also mentioned in Psalm 110 when it looks forward to ultimately what Christ will do and serve as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And good for good reason, because Christ, in the context of this text, has not yet come. And we have the blessing of being able to read Hebrews 7 and see its interpretation of really what this is. And we'll look at that in a few moments. But this particular and peculiar figure in the Old Testament may confuse us at times or even uh, cause us to wonder because of the lack of information 
But what we see here is ultimately his uh, foreshadowing of ultimately what Christ would be doing. And it's in the context of the nations at war. I think this is important in the long scope of Genesis. Remember, we've had creation. We've seen him dealing with the fall. We've seen him walking through the thread of redemption up through Noah's day, destroying the world at that time, building it back up through Noah and his children. We've looked at the genealogies, how God has built this people back, and we see the wickedness of men, the rebellious hearts of men, and then we see all of God dealing with the world at that time down to one man, Abram. He says, come, follow me to a place that you do not know, and Abram followed him. In fact, Abram, this patriarch of the faith, is looked at throughout even the New Testament as an example of one who lives by faith, not by sight. And so in the context of what we've been studying, I want to look at this in three areas. First of all, he meets here after this battle with the kings that we looked at last week. He meets with royalty. He meets with royalty. And we'll see the con contrast here between this king of righteousness, the king of kings, the one who has made these rich promises to Abram and these other kings. Secondly, we'll actually unpack a little bit of who this Melchizedek is, that he is the righteous one. And then lastly, we'll see um, Abram's modest response to the king of Sodom. Let's jump right in here. Look at verse 17. Notice this is after the return of the defeat of Chedorlaomer. He was ultimately over uh, all of Babylon at that time. He was leader of all the kings. And notice that God routed these kings through Abram. It should remind us of even places like Gideon in the book of Judges, that these five kingdoms were routed by 318 men, if you look back in verse 14. God worked a miracle in this situation. And we know that this is the case because as Melchizedek comes out, he praises God most high and he acknowledges that he is the one who has delivered Abraham from his enemies. And so you see the very battle lines drawn, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our God that ultimately were promised through Abram. That God would remember back in chapter 12, he said he would give him a nation, he would make him a great nation, he would give him a land, which he does not have. Remember, these kings are ruling over that. He doesn't even have a son. He's promised that his offspring would be as numerous as the stars of the heavens. And he doesn't have one son yet. And yet he's looking to God by faith. And we know, as we know from the text of, of uh, earlier in the chapters of Genesis, that when he went to Egypt, for instance, that he was challenged by his faith, and, or challenged by the, uh, the circumstances, and it was a challenge ultimately to uh, trusting the Lord. And so in the context here, we see this great defeat, and it's in the wake of this that we see this here in verse 17. He's in the presence of kings. And we know that these kings respect Abram. In fact, they fear him in many ways, which we'll see in future passages. But notice that it's the king of Sodom who comes out to meet him. We should notice here that when we consider Sodom, 
this is the place where Lot went and dwelt. You know, it was the place that, that Lot sought to go because he said it was like the garden of the Lord. Look back, uh, just by way of reminder, back into chapter 13 when uh, Lot lifts up his eyes. And notice, uh, go to verse 10 of chapter 13. It says, Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So you see there, even in parentheses, the author of Genesis, Moses, is writing these things down. He's connecting these uh, threads of God's redemption, that he is calling out a people to himself amidst what is going on in the world. But Sodom and Gomorrah are being devoted to destruction, as we'll see uh, again in the narrative of Genesis. But as we look here, it's Sodom who comes out and approaches um, Abram. In fact, we know that before we're interrupted in verse 18 with the character of Melchizedek, if you jump down real quickly, we notice that he picks up with his conversation down in verse 23, um, or in verse 22, that Abraham said to the king of Sodom. So it's almost like this interruption of this conversation that he is having with this king of Sodom. But that's not by accident. The word of God is given to us, even in historical narrative, which Genesis is, there's a story to be told. There is a powerful story to be told that one is coming. This one that is promised from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that he would crush the serpent's head, that he would uh, accomplish this work that God had set him apart to do. The seed of the woman, if you will, as we've been watching and waiting and we're looking at Abram's life and we see these great promises of God, but on the other hand, we see many circumstantial troubles amongst which there isn't a land for him to take because the kings are living in it. Secondly, he doesn't have any offspring. His wife is barren. And so there's all these things that are leading up in Abram's life to say, it just doesn't make sense to trust God. It just doesn't make sense to believe that he is able to accomplish what he's promising me. The circumstances of life speak exactly opposite this. And it's in this context that here he meets this king in the valley of Sheva. And notice this is translated, the king's valley, it says in verse 15. That's very important because it's in this valley, in this great promised land, that God chose that he would reveal himself to his people. There's nowhere like this place. And this is why we call it the Holy Land. This is where God has decided that he would reveal himself to his people. And so it's in that bookend, if you will, which we'll come to the other one in verse 22, that we get the, uh, the introduction to Melchizedek. And so here it is in verse 18. And Melchizedek. Notice he is called the king of Salem. Now, pay attention to that. Salem, peace. So he's literally the king of righteousness and peace. And Salem is ultimately the place that uh, ultimately where Jerusalem would be built. Jerusalem, the peace of our God. 
that we see that Melchizedek, this is where he is king. There's a contrast between the king of Sodom and the king of Salem. They're both together, and they're coming to Abram. And notice what he brings. He brings out what? Bread and wine. And the context here, Moses writes this. He says he was priest of God most high. Why is that important? God most high. El Elyon, the one who is above all. He is above all else. This is the one that Melchizedek is a high priest or a priest over God for God most high. Now, we don't have the law yet. We don't have anything of the uh, sacrificial system or any order yet at all. And yet we have here a character who is a priest before God most high, and he's coming out offering bread and wine to Abram. Coincidence? No. And notice his words to him. He says, and he blessed him. You see the context here of bringing out not just bread for the body, but wine as we know would characterize so much from the fruit of the vine of what God promised throughout the uh, lineage of the Old Testament, that the vine is like the precious one who is providing life if, if you follow it all the way from Genesis even to Revelation, it's a scarlet crimson tide that goes through all of Scripture and it points not to an action, but a person. It, it points to this character of Christ and what He has done in accomplishing the redemption for God Most High. That He is the one who reveals Himself in time and space. And as we'll see here, this Melchizedek has no lineage. It's like he comes out of nowhere and he has no end, which we'll come back to. But notice that he is the one that blesses Abram here in verse 19. It says he blessed him and he says these words, blessed be Abraham by, notice El Elyon, God most high. And notice he connects here that this is the God from Genesis 1. He is the possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And there's the purpose statement of what he has done. He's saying, we praise God most high. He is the one who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And so we see here, in the narrative of Genesis 13, that God is at work in Abram's life. We looked at last week that sometimes we are confused about the circumstances of our lives, aren't we? We don't understand why is it that God uses or brings trials into our lives that are hard and difficult, and yet we see that he is doing this ultimately to exalt himself and to funnel us ultimately into his presence. And so Abram, while he is struggling to trust the Lord in the midst of this, these kings rise up and really kidnap his uh, his uh, nephew Lot and take him off to the land. We know that the Lord gives great victory through very few men, and yet God is the one to be praised. Do you ever feel like you are at war with the world? Do you ever feel alone and helpless? Take courage here from this passage 
Abram walking as a man of faith, very much alone with his family and against the world ultimately, that God is delivering him. And church, remember this, that God is strong to deliver when we look to him and when he is the one who is our sole treasure and sole focus and sole um, focus. And so he says that Abram responds to him. Look at the end of verse 20. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So we have seen the meeting with these royalty. Now let's really look at who this Melchizedek is. Notice that he's receiving honor from Abram. Notice he's not giving that kind of honor to Sodom, which we'll see in a few moments. He's giving this honor to uh, Melchizedek. And he's given him a tenth of everything. This is the, one of the first places in the Old Testament that we see what we know as the tithe. That he's giving a tenth to Melchizedek. Now I want you to turn over to Hebrews chapter 7. Hebrews chapter 7. The author of Hebrews is bringing out these very truths literally from this passage, showing us not only the identity of this Melchizedek, but his office as priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, which we've already talked about, priest, again, notice, of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abram apportioned a tenth of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he's also the king of Salem, that is, the king of peace. He is without father or mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues as a priest forever. This is exactly what the Old Testament scriptures were pointing to, that this order of Melchizedek was separate than the Aaronic priesthood that would be just after this period. It's ultimately pushing towards one that is going to be other than what we know as far as the law is concerned. And so the author of Hebrews continues in verse 4. He says, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of his spoils. Notice the exclamation point. In other words, it was a response of Abram to give him these things and to honor him as the king of Salem, the king of righteousness. In verse 5, it says, And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers. Don't get confused here. We'll, we'll tie this together. Through those also are descended from Abram. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. So let's pause there for a moment. What is, what is the author of Hebrews saying? There's something 
in this tithe that he's giving, he's giving an honor, a recognition to something other than. It's also prophetic about what is to come. So he says here in verse 7, it is beyond dispute that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior, Melchizedek. And it's in the one case that tithes are received by mortal men, but in another case by one of whom is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. All right, so the the author of Hebrews gives us a whole bunch of understanding of this text that seems to be just strange to us as we read in the text of Genesis 14. But in the kindness of God, he gives us Hebrews 7 to really expound this great character of Melchizedek to show us that God is up to something, not just in the early pages of Scripture, but that he's going to do this for all eternity. That this, this guy, Melchizedek, is setting up an order that ultimately that prefigures what Christ will do as our high priest. And it's the author of Hebrews that takes this very notion, this very teaching, to expound upon that Christ is a high priest forever according to this order. And it's a better covenant. It's better than anything the scriptures have all said that God has set up in different situations throughout his people over all this time that Christ is going to be superior, that he is going to be lifted up, that he is the one that is going to offer bread and wine to his disciples that ultimately will build a people for himself and will renew a people for himself out of the flesh of of Adam's race, that he would make a people for himself. So it's this great New Testament truth married with this Old Testament prophecy that we see that God is working even in the midst of Abram's day to preach of something that is yet to come and yet something to come after that. Do you ever feel like God is slow concerning his promises? I don't know about you, but have you ever doubted God's promises? Really, every time we sin, we doubt his promises, do we not? He says he would come back soon. How do you define the word soon? Some of you children are hoping that this sermon will end soon. We understand that God's timing is not man's timing. We know that from the scriptures that a day is like a thousand years. And we know yet at the same time that the apostle Paul says that Christ will come soon. In fact, you read to the end of the book of Revelation, it says he's coming quickly. And so it's in this context that I think we can relate to Abraham, can we not? Abraham had the promises of God. They seem to be dissolving before his very eyes. He's spending all of his time fighting the kings of this world. He's spending all of his time rescuing his own nephew who is really wanting to be close to this world and and habitate next to the world. How's your heart this morning? Are you making your roots Are you setting up your tents near Sodom while judgment awaits and we know that God is coming in his own wrath to judge the world? We know that by his gospel that the bad news is that all of us are sold under sin, that we all are deserving of God's wrath. And it's by his awesome grace that he would show any of us that kind of grace to deliver us from his wrath. We have 
sinned against a holy God, this God most high, as Abram says and as Melchizedek says. We have sinned against him, and because he's an eternal being, we can be punished eternally. And this is why the weight and the gravity of such a text should grip our hearts. Because God is to be feared. God is to be reckoned with. It is God who we will stand before. And we think the kingdoms of this world are dangerous, but God most high is one who will rule over all. And it's in the context of this that this character, Melchizedek, comes out and meets him. Is that not what Christ has done for us? We're on our path of life, and Christ stepped in at one point in your life through the words of a friend, through the gospel being preached, maybe through a radio program or a gospel track, and God announced to you that he was calling you out, and he said, come after me to a land that you do not know. Come follow after me, even though you do not know where you're going. Trust me by faith, and church, it is the same for us in this life, that we are amidst the kings of this world. All we can see is what we can see with our eyes, but God says to look up. He says to look to me by faith, and as Jesus said, even after his resurrection, blessed are those who believe in me and yet have not seen. We are called to walk by faith like Abram did. And so here in the context of this great Melchizedek, we know that Jesus is ultimately compared to him. I wish we had the time to exposit through uh, Hebrews 7. We taught through that about four years ago. You can go listen to it if you'd like, because there's some rich text here uh, towards the end of chapter 7 of Hebrews that I would encourage you to go through that would clear some other um, issues in, in your questions about this, this character here. But for our sake today, we see him coming on the scene, this uh, foreshadowing of Christ yet to come. And so, what is it that God is doing in Abram's life? We see him meeting with the kings. We've seen now his uh, meeting with uh, Melchizedek. And we see now Abram's humble and modest response to the king of Sodom. Look at verse 22. He says, But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say that I have made Abram rich. You see what's going on here? Abram's talking to literally the king of Sodom, who is really ultimately going to be judged by God. He's wicked according to the text of chapter uh, uh, 12 and 13. And it's this king that's offering Abram spoil. Do you see the contrast here? Between what Melchizedek is bringing out to him and saying praise be to God who has promised you these things. And then over here we have this mere king of Sodom offering him the world's riches. And Abram, in a statement of faith, says, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. In other words, I believe the Lord. I believe that he is a fulfiller of promises. I can't see it right now. I don't understand it. Kings like you are 
uh, in the land that he has promised me. I don't have a son, and yet he says I will have descendants as the seashore. I don't understand what he's doing. He says he would make my name great, and all I'm doing is delivering my poor nephew. And yet he'll do it again in the next chapter. And so he says, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, and I have acknowledged him just as Melchizedek did, the possessor of heaven and earth. Do you see where Melchizedek and Abram are aligned in their look to God Most High? Melchizedek, like a priest, is pointing Abraham and saying, do not lose focus. Look to the God Most High who has made heaven and earth. He is the one who has possessed it. He is the one from creation, and he's connecting it all the way through to what his redemptive purposes are in your life, Abraham, and what is to come after you. Abraham knew that he was a in-process individual. He also knew that he was a connector to the next generation. He knew it wasn't going to be fulfilled all in his lifetime. And so in verse 23, he says, I will not take a thread or a sandal strap of anything that is yours, lest you say I have made Abram rich. The world would love to claim us, to say that we are self-made men and women, that God is not the one blessing us. He is not the one to be praised. Our efforts are to be praised. Our efforts and what has been given to us are to be acknowledged. And Abram's saying, no way, lest I should say that you have made me rich. Abram, in an act of faith, is pushing aside the spoils of war and looking ultimately to the God who is protecting and providing for him. And by definition, that is love. In fact, this is setting up the very context of chapter 15, that God will make a covenant with Abram. He is going to make a covenant that ultimately is going to, again, lift his head to uh, look to what God is going to accomplish in his life. But notice his modesty in here in verse 24. He says, I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten. In other words, he has a gracious provision for these three men who had been dwelling with. Isn't it true that in the context of God's promises and his people that God blesses those around us? Just look at the life of Lot. Even though he chose Sodom as his dwelling place, he's delivered uh, in chapter 14 here. We're going to see him delivered ultimately from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, even though he loses his wife. It's in the same context that uh, Abram is dwelling with these peaceable people uh, Aner, Eskol, and Mamre, and he's acknowledging them, and he wants to provide for them. And so he says, let me not take anything, but let them take what some of the spoil is, the share is, and to take their share. Isn't it uh, the truths of God that we also receive from God the very promises of God, the very blessings of God, but those around us receive the overflow? <laughs> I think it's awesome to see this year. Why? Well, I think in the context here of our lives, we, we tend to think that God has forgotten us. You can think about this in a personal way, can't you? Has God forgotten me? Has God not kept his promises? You think about the promises of God. Maybe you feel like you're overtaken by sin in a particular way. 
Maybe you feel like the circumstances of life are crushing you and you're crying out and you feel like your prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. Maybe you have a loved one that doesn't know the Lord and you've preached the gospel and God has not saved them yet. Perhaps you have a loved one that's sick. Maybe you're grieving the loss of a loved one. It doesn't matter whatever times of joy or times of strife that we're in, God is using these very details to get our attention just as he got Abram's attention here to remind him that what this world has to offer is not enough. What this world has to offer is just gravel ultimately in the end. It's mere dust. It will disappear. We cannot take it. Isn't it interesting in the context of even Jesus's temptations that Satan says that he would give him the nations of this world, that he would give him all these things and rule over it all. But what a small thing when you are entitled to be king. And so we look at Abram's faith, and I think we can be encouraged here in multiple ways. We often think, well, what in the world of this narrative is applicable to my life? Well, first of all, I think it's important for us to notice that Abram is not just responding to circumstances, but he's living by faith. And what does living by faith produce? It produces the kind of character and response that we see here at the end of chapter 14. He's God-focused. He's God-centered. Secondly, it comes out in his response that he gives, not just to uh, a tithe to, to Melchizedek, but we know that this is a, a typology, again, that God is worthy of everything. If he is eternal and he's blessed us with riches uh, in, in Christ, then he is worthy of all these things. And lastly, that we wouldn't settle for the greatness of this world, but ultimately to the praise of our God that one day will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. So what about you? How is it that this text lands on your ears? First of all, I want us to see that the king of righteousness has come your way this morning. Regardless of what you're going through, if you've never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, this mysterious figure comes into your life today through the very preaching of this text. Christ, the Son of God, has come into the world to save sinners such as you and me. He is the one, the only one, that is able to take the wrath of God and atone for your sin through his blood on the cross. Why? because of who he is. No other man could do such a thing. As the scriptures say, that for, scarcely for a, a righteous man would be, one be even uh, tempted to die. But God died for us, and while we are yet sinners, that he laid down his life for us. He, God, fully God and fully man, is a perfect representation between God and man. And it's pictured here in the person of Melchizedek, a high priest before God. And his work is finished as far as the cross is concerned, but he continues to make intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. This high priest, there is none like him. There is none like this God who has come into your life today. The question is, have you responded to him? You, 
like Abram, have a choice to make. Are you siding with the kingdoms of this world or are you bowing in worship to God most high? Are you looking to Christ as your sole treasure, as your sole worth? He's the all that you really have to hang on to, even though the world is tempting and thinking that you can hold on to other things. Christ is calling you to repentance and faith. But for the rest of us, we've been walking with the Lord, and we can find such richness here in Christ's high priesthood, if you will. First of all, we see that Melchizedek is a mere type. Christ is better. Christ bestows his righteousness upon us. Secondly, we know that we have the right to come boldly to his throne of grace because he is our high priest. We can run to him in times of trouble. What other, what other religion offers such hope, such grace that this risen Christ can be approached in all of his holiness because of what he has done for us. We can run boldly to him. Thirdly, we see here that our high priest has approached, just as he approached Abraham, he has approached us. As the rich passage from Ephesians chapter 1 says, Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Have you ever chewed on that? That it was before the foundation of the world that God chose us in him to be holy and blameless before him, that in love he predestined us uh, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will? I don't know about you, but that puts me in a humble and reverent position. How is it that this God would choose me, that he would pluck me a brand out of the fire and save me and apply his righteousness to me? Truly, this is why Christ is worthy of our worship. Amen? This is why he is our focus. This is why he is our treasure. Have you responded to him? Have you considered his ancestry and what he is able to do for you? That he is one who is to be believed on, as John 1.12 says, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Christ, our high priest, offers us a great, great treasure this morning. And so when it was faced with Abram, he saw the promise of his priesthood, he saw the permanency of his priesthood, and he saw the personal nature of his priesthood. And that is being offered to us this morning. Do you trust him? Are you rejoicing in him, your king as supreme? Let's pray. Lord, we look at this text and there's so much here. In fact, we nowhere near touch the depths of it. But how awesome it is to consider Abram's walk with you. Not much unlike our own. As we go about life, you bring things into our lives by providence. You brought a famine into his life uh, in the previous chapter. In this chapter, we see a warring of kings and uh, a kidnapping of his 
nephew Lot. And Lord, it's through these things that you reveal yourself to Abram. And Lord, it's your word that tells us that Abram's faith was accounted to him as righteousness. The king of righteousness has bestowed that upon those who look to you in faith. And that's a mystery to us, O oh God, that you would call us to look to you and that you, in turn, would replace our sin and our rebellion and our darkened, hard, sinful hearts with your righteousness. Hearts of flesh, hearts that can feel, hearts that can love, that can be conduits of your grace to a lost and dying world. How is it that you would show this upon us what a privileged people we are. Oh God, would we not sit on this great treasure? Help us to open our mouths, to preach this to those who are being satisfied on this world's filth, who think that each day is just another breath, another food in their belly, and yet hell awaits. Oh God, break our hearts for those who need you. Would we be messengers of your grace, just as you have brought messengers into our lives? Oh God, fulfill this in our generation to bring many to you for your sake and for your glory and for our good. And so Lord, help us to not just leave here praising you, but enjoying you. Because it's when we enjoy you most that you are most glorified because we are most satisfied in you. Jesus' name, amen.